Well, that's a great song to end on as we return to our study in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9, where God's faithfulness was being called into question and Paul set out in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to vindicate the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God, that God is faithful to his word. Well, as you're turning there, I just wanted to uh, make you aware, in case you have not heard, that there is a new uh, Acts 29 church plant that is being launched this morning, right now, while we're meeting here. They're meeting over at the Montgomery High School Auditorium. And uh, I think most of you know Ralph Clements, uh, who was uh, used to pastor a small Reformed Baptist church here in the Montgomery area. And uh, after disbanding that church, uh, he and his family and some other folks from his church uh, came here to Lakeside, and it was a great time for them to be refreshed and, and uh, renewed in, in their own walk with the Lord and uh, just to kind of recalibrate what, what was next for them. And uh, while uh, they were here, as you know, Ralph, uh, who filled the pulpit on a number of occasions, uh, his, his passion to preach, his passion to shepherd only increased. And after uh, sifting through a number of uh, ministry opportunities, they decided to land on uh, planting a church here in the Montgomery area, another church uh, to reach more people uh, than any one church in this community uh, could reach by themselves. And uh, you all know that this, uh, this community is exploding, right? Lots of new people moving in and lots of things developing. And so as a community grows, right, uh, so should churches grow. And so uh, we are going to miss Ralph and uh, his family, along with uh, some of the other uh, folks who have left Lakeside to go be with them, uh, the Swearingen's and the Rosses, um, uh, the Siders, and uh, some other families that we all know and love uh, are uh, participating in this church plant. But I told Ralph, uh, knowing that today was the day that they were going to kick it off and have their first official service, uh, that I wanted to pray for them uh, as a church and ask the Lord's blessing upon him. I asked him this week, what is he going to be preaching through? And he said, the gospel of Mark. And I thought, man, great choice uh, for uh, a first series, right, at a church plant where you want to reach people with the good news of the gospel. And so we know, we know that the gospel will be preached. We know that God's kingdom will be advanced. And in this, we rejoice. And so let's pray right now uh, that the Lord would bless this new endeavor. Father, we're grateful for uh, raising up uh, a man like Ralph Clements who has a passion uh, for uh, your word and a passion for lost people and a passion to connect the two and to help people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Thank you for giving him that burden and uh, providing him an outlet for that burden in this new church. And so, Lord, we pray even now as they are meeting uh, for the first time uh, that you would grant Ralph um, your special blessing. May they, uh, those who are sitting under the teaching of your word, uh, sense that they are uh, experiencing a demonstration of your spirit's power as he uh, opens up the gospel of Mark and begins explaining it um, uh, verse by verse, uh, week after week, that you would use uh, Cornerstone Community Church, Lord, to reach many uh, in this community, this growing community, with the truth 
of your word. And so uh, we ask that you would uh, just provide for them everything they need, Lord, and that uh, we would be uh, a great resource uh, to them. Uh, We would be a great uh, support for them uh, and that we could, if it be your will, in the future to partner together and to uh, work together uh, to advance your kingdom. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are here in Romans 9. And uh, last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. And uh, now we move into really what is the the heart of the chapter, uh, verses 6 through 29. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read verses 6 through 29. But I just want you to know uh, that they all go together. All those verses go together. It's kind of one big chunk uh, that we need to see it, uh, kind of the big picture. Sometimes we, we get into the forest and we lose sight of the forest for all the trees that we're bumping into. And so I want us to, to know that, that uh, we need to see all these verses together. They go together. What Paul says here all connects, but uh, they can be broken down into parts. And, and so we're going to be working through this section uh, in a number of parts. And so the first part that I want to look at uh, is verses 6 through 13. And so let's read this together. Uh, Paul said this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, not are, nor are nor they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for through the twins, excuse me, for though the twins were not yet born and had not, not, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here in this text, Paul plunged headfirst into what many consider to be the most controversial subject in the Bible, the doctrine of election. Now, the very mention of the word election has already begun to stir up all kinds of conflicting emotions in this room, in every one of us, from intense anger and fear to absolute joy and relief. No other topic elicits a wider range of responses than election. While some love it and wholeheartedly embrace it, most people hate it and vehemently reject it. A.W. Pink Uh, the gifted Bible teacher and author, believed that election was, quote, one of the most hated doctrines of the Bible, the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. A shocking statement. But we know that throughout church history, the 
doctrine of election has sparked countless theological discussions and debates and spawned many opposing factions and denominations. For example, there are some people who come to this church because we believe in and teach on the doctrine of election. And there are other people who will never come to this church because we believe in and teach on the doctrine of election. It's as simple as that. I'll never forget the, the, the meeting that I had with the candidating committee at the first church that I pastored and I'd gone there on a candidating visit to assess whether or not I would be a good fit for that church and as they were grilling me with questions and trying to assess whether or not I would uh, serve them well as their pastor, one man asked very boldly, very frankly, what I would do if I was preaching through a book of the Bible and I came to a verse that mentioned election. Apparently, the previous pastor would sidestep or skip over passages that mentioned election in order to avoid stirring up controversy in the church, and this particular man didn't appreciate that, and I could tell that, and so I just simply said, I, I would teach it. And immediately, another man sitting across the table on the same search committee said, quote, if you teach election, I'll leave this church. So here's a guy wanting to make sure I was going to teach on the doctrine of election, and here's a guy insisting that if I did, he would leave the church. Well, no preacher should ever shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. An election is included in those things that Paul considered profitable to declare. In fact, Paul mentioned election often in his letters to the churches. Let me just read for you a few examples. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the church in Colossae, he wrote, as those who have been chosen of God, to the believers in Thessalonica, he said, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And then later in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. And then to Timothy, he wrote this in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. And then to Titus, he wrote this in Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Now this wasn't just something that Paul made up or was his personal hobby horse. The other apostles and Jesus himself believed it and mentioned it often. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24 Verse 24 said regarding the end times, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead even, po if possible, even the elect. He went on in that same chapter, Matthew 24, 31, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. In Luke 18, 7, Jesus said, I will not or excuse me, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? John 15, 16, he said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Peter, who was the leader of 
the church, the one that Jesus had appointed to be the head of the church. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he said this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then in the second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, he said, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So based on all of these verses and more that I don't have time to read, I can confidently say that the doctrine of election is not the product of the overactive mind of some old dead theologian by the name of John Calvin. It's not merely human speculation based on a few obscure verses in the Bible. It is clearly divine revelation that the Holy Spirit included all over the place in God's word. And in light of all the clashing opinions and emotions surrounding the doctrine of election, we need to direct our minds and our hearts back to the pages of Scripture and simply submit to what it undeniably and unavoidably says. And there's no better place in Scripture to go than Romans 9. And it should come as no surprise to us that in the most extensive explanation of God's plan of salvation ever written, Paul would also provide the most extensive instruction on the doctrine of election found anywhere in the Bible. Go figure. The Apostle Paul, right, in the book of Romans. He's already hinted at it back in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. He said, who will bring a charge against God's elect? That was just a teaser for what he was about to write here in chapter 9. Based on what we have here, we can conclude that the doctrine of election, the fact that Paul included it in part of his explanation of the gospel, his explanation of the doctrine of salvation, that the doctrine of election is an important part of the doctrine of salvation, and therefore our understanding of election is crucial to our understanding of salvation, including man's total inability or depravity and God's total sovereignty. So much of what we believe about our salvation hinges on what we believe about election. In other words, we can't accurately understand our salvation unless we accurately understand election. Well, before we dive into what John Piper calls a, quote, theologically explosive section of Scripture, let me provide a word of caution. We need to realize that what Paul said here is beyond human comprehension. In other words, it's impossible to fully understand the doctrine of election. It involves great mystery and creates major problems in our fallen, finite minds. And it, it really, at the end of the day, it comes down to, you know what? God's ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I'm just going to have to be okay with it. And I'll apparently understand it when I get to heaven. Or at least understand it better. But 
But I guarantee you, as we work our way through these verses, that you will find yourself not only wincing at some of the things that Paul said here, but you'll also find yourself protesting mentally and perhaps even verbally, hopefully not out loud in the middle of the message, but maybe afterwards in small group or at lunch, right? Serious objections will come into your mind and possibly come out of your mouth as a result of what we're going to read and study here. And that's okay, because Paul anticipated that his readers, including us, would naturally object to what he wrote. But the bottom line when it comes to the doctrine of election is you can't skip over it, you can't gloss over it, you can't reinterpret it, or even reject it. I should say you could do all those things. You, you could skip over it. You, you could gloss over it. You could reinterpret it. You could even reject it. But bottom line is you can't avoid it. You can't deny it. It's right here in black and white, and you've got to deal with it. I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, about the doctrine of election, he said, quote, try to explain it and you may lose your mind, but try to explain it away and you may lose your soul. Good balance there. So, Romans chapter nine. If you remember from last week, this letter took a dramatic turn. Paul went from the Heights of glory at the end of chapter 8 to the depths of grief at the beginning of chapter 9. And in verses 1 through 5, which we looked at last Sunday, uh, Paul expresses great sorrow, his unceasing grief that the vast majority of his fellow Jews had rejected Christ and the gospel, and as a result, they were accursed, literally doomed to be eternally punished by God in hell. And while Paul knew it was an impossibility, he sincerely wished that he could be damned so they could be saved. Hopefully you've been still ruminating on that concept, praying about that radical statement that Paul made and asking God to help you experience some bit of that in your own heart and mind when it comes to your perspective on lost people. But the question is, how could the Jews be accursed by God? If, 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 what, if what Paul said is true, if, if they're accursed by God, in, in light of all the blessings and, and privileges and promises that he had given the nation of Israel, who he had chosen out of all the other nations in the world to be a special prized possession, and Paul saying they're accursed? And so Paul anticipated the, the question that would naturally come into people's minds and are out of people's mouths in response to his insistence that the Jews were going to hell. Verse six, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Literally, it, it's not as though the word of God has fallen. Interesting, if you look at verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. So we're talking about has God's, has God's word fallen or is God's word standing, still standing, is the idea here. And so Paul knew that in people's minds, if, if, 
if most of the Jews were not saved, then it would appear that God had failed to keep his word to them. That, that he, he's broken all the promises that he made to Israel back in the Old Testament. And, and furthermore, if God reneged on his promises to Israel, then how can Paul so adamantly guarantee that God will be faithful to keep his promises to us? The Gentile believers who were the greater part of the house churches in Rome and the majority of churches today, the majority of this church, Paul had just got done saying that nothing can ever separate those who have been chosen by God from his love, that our eternal salvation is secure in Christ, verses 29 through 39 in chapter 8. Well, if that's true, then, then what's up with God's chosen people, the nation of Israel? If they're accursed by God, like Paul said, then it sure looks like they've been separated from the love of God. And so the very character of God was at stake here, particularly his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Can God be trusted? And so here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul set out to defend the character of God by showing that his dealings with Israel, past, present, and future, actually magnify not only God's faithfulness but many of his other attributes as well. And ironically, Paul based his defense of God's character on, of all things, the doctrine of election. And I'd be like, hey, Paul, you know, was that really the, where you wanted to go here? Do you really want to lead with that? This seems completely counterintuitive in that there's no other doctrine that causes God's character to be called into question, particularly his justice and his fairness, more than the doctrine of election. In other words, Paul, I don't know if you're going to do yourself a favor here by throwing election into the mix right now. You're going to, you're going to start with that? Really? The fact that before the creation of the world, God chose who would be saved. By the way, not who wouldn't be saved. Hold that thought, because our minds naturally want to take election to its logical conclusion, what the Bible never does. Let me give you a, I was going to say simple definition. There's no simple definition of election, but let me just give you a basic definition of election. And I'll read it a couple of times just so you can kind of get your mind around it as best you can. This is how I would define election based on all that I've read in scripture, all that I've read in other resources. Before the creation of the world, God chose to rescue some out of the mass of depraved, damned humanity to enjoy eternal life in heaven while passing over the rest and allowing them to suffer the just consequences of their sins in eternal torment in hell. It's a basic definition of election. Let me read it again. Before the creation of the world, God chose to rescue some out of the mass of damned, depraved humanity to enjoy eternal life in heaven while passing over the rest and allowing them to suffer the just consequences of their sins in eternal torment in hell. 
This is the second of the five core doctrinal convictions of the Reformers known as the Doctrines of Grace. If you're familiar with that, it's sometimes referred to as TULIP, an acronym or an acrostic, uh, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so here we're talking about the U uh, of the TULIP, uh, the, the unconditional election. And so reform theology, which I would simply say biblical theology, which was recaptured by the reformers in their day and age, affirms that God's choice to save some individuals was uninfluenced and unprompted by anything in the individuals, but rested purely in God's sovereign will. And so election that is not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or righteous act that God foresaw in us. And so that's why we attach the word unconditional to election. Unconditional election simply means that God did not select us to be saved based on who we are or what we do, but based entirely on his unearned and undeserved kindness and favor. And Paul's point is, this is the way it's always been. particularly in regards to God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, who are called multiple times or referred to multiple times in the Old Testament as my chosen ones. Turn quickly back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6. And here we have the classic text regarding God's choice of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Moses was reminding the people before they entered the promised land. He said, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all the peoples. In other words, if it was up to you, I would have never chosen you. That's why Spurgeon said, I'm, I, I have to believe in the doctrine of election because I don't know why God would have ever chosen me. I know me well enough that there's nothing in me that God would have, would have would attracted his gaze or attention. So he says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose it because you were more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Interesting, back in Romans 9, in Paul's mind, the natural starting point for any discussion on the doctrine of election is God's dealings with the Jews. Now, I find it interesting that few would ever argue that the Jews are God's chosen people. I've never gotten into an argument with somebody about that issue. Like, everybody's like, accepts the fact that the Jews are God's chosen people. And yet, many have a hard time accepting the fact that God 
chooses individuals who will be saved. And based on his dealings with the nation of Israel, what Paul is pointing out here, and as we're going to see, is that God doesn't choose everybody and never has. And this is best illustrated in the fact that it wasn't God's will that every Jew would be saved. God never guaranteed the salvation of all the Israelites, but rather he freely and sovereignly selected which one of them would be the beneficiaries of all his promises to Israel. Look ahead to chapter 11. Paul talks about this remnant in verse 5. Romans eleven five. 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So God has selected a remnant out of the nation of Israel based on nothing except his sovereign grace and mercy. Now back to Romans 9. In verses 6 and 7, Paul referred to this saved remnant as the Israel within Israel. And used that as a launching spot to prove that God has always been and will always be true to his word since salvation has never been and never will be something that can be inherited or earned but is based solely on the unconditional election which vindicates God's character. And so Paul, from verse 6 all the way to verse 29, showed how the doctrine of unconditional election reveals God in all of his glory. In other words, election puts on display all of God's glorious attributes, especially his sovereignty and his justice and his mercy and his wrath and his power and, of course, his faithfulness. And so here in verses 6 through 13, we see God vindicated through his sovereignty and Paul explained and exemplified that salvation is not based on who we are or what we do, but but on God's sovereign choice of those who will be saved. And, And so there's an explanation that he gives and then he gives some examples. Notice the explanation. Verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now Paul's already addressed this same issue earlier in the letter, back in Romans chapter 2. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. What was Paul getting at here when he talked like this? Well, the Jews prided themselves in the fact that they were the offspring of Abraham and God's chosen people. And based on their Jewish bloodline, they consider themselves shoe-ins for heaven. In fact, according to rabbinic tradition, Abraham sits at the entrance of hell 
in order to keep any circumcised individuals from going there. In other words, if you've been circumcised according to the tradition of Judaism, you, you will not be able to go to hell. You, Abraham won't let it happen. That, that's rabbinic tradition. And so what Paul was doing here is correcting that wrong thinking, and he was explaining that just because someone was a physical descendant of Abraham didn't mean that they're automatically a spiritual recipient of all the promises God made to Israel. In fact, there are actually two Israels. There's an Israel within Israel. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Like, whoa, whoa. What are you saying, Paul? There's, in other words, there's a, there's a spiritual nucleus of true believers inside the physical nation of descendants of Abraham. And that, that nucleus is made up of only those who God chose to be saved based on his free grace and mercy. So salvation is not a matter of biology, but of sovereignty. Paul wanted the Jews to understand that being saved was a matter of grace, not race. I guess the modern equivalent of this would be that no one should assume that they're a Christian because their parents or grandparents are Christians. God doesn't have grandchildren. In other words, a person must be sovereignly chosen by God, but individually place their faith in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Again, this isn't just Paul's deal. We don't have time to look at it, but you can write down John 8, verses 31 to 44, where Jesus was discussing with the Jews, the Pharisees, about who their daddy was. <laughs> and they were claiming that Abraham was their daddy. And he said, then why are you trying to kill me? In fact, your daddy is the devil. And so this was, again, not unique to Paul. This was something that Jesus desired to, to correct in the, in the thinking of the Jews of that day. And so Paul's basic point here in verses 6, 7, and 8 was that from the very beginning, God has been selective in regards to salvation. The only people who are saved are those that God chose to be saved. That's a simple point. And he's using the nation of Israel to, to prove that. And so after explaining that, he, he says, well, I'm gonna, let me give you some examples. And in verses 9 through 13, Paul used two illustrations from the history of Israel to prove that when God gave the promise of blessing to Abraham and his descendants, he didn't have every Jew in mind. And both of these examples prove that election is unconditional. Again, it's not based on who we are or what we do. So the first example is that God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Verse nine, for this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul was quoting a, a, a passage from Genesis where God had a conversation or the angel of the Lord had a conversation with Abraham promising that through his wife, Sarah, 
he would have a son um, through whom would come a great nation that would be a blessing to the entire world. And God made a promise to them that you're going to have a kid, you're going to have a son. Well, because they were both old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing, they sinfully took matters into their own hands and Sarah encouraged Abraham to take her maid Hagar and let her serve as a surrogate mother for this promised son. Well, when Hagar conceived, Sarah despised her and so Abraham drove her away into the wilderness where an angel of the Lord promised to bless her child despite her affliction. And so she eventually gave birth to a son named Ishmael, which, by the way, was the father of all the Arab nations. So are there consequences when you go outside of God's will and kind of do your own thing, get impatient, take matters in your own hands? Yeah, I would say sometimes some major consequences, like the biggest conflict on planet Earth, right? Between Israel and the Arab nations. All started back in Genesis because they weren't willing to trust God and wait for that promised son. Well, 13 years later, God appeared to Abraham. 13 years after Ishmael was born, God appeared to Abraham again and made a covenant with him, again, renewed that promise that he would have another son through his wife Sarah, to which he laughed and protested. And back in Genesis 17, it's interesting to to, to read the, the uh, interaction that Abraham had with the angel of the Lord. Genesis 17, 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, hey, we got a guy. Let's just use him. Let's just go with Ishmael. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So, even though Ishmael and Isaac both descended from their father Abraham, God specifically chose Isaac to be the recipient of all the spiritual blessings that God had promised the nation of Israel. And so that was why Paul used as an example. But Paul knew that some might argue that God obviously chose Isaac because he was the true son of Abraham and Sarah, whereas Ishmael was born of Hagar, and so he was not of the true bloodline, and so uh, they, you could get around that one. And so he presents an even better example of twins who had the same father and the same mother. Isaac and Ishmael had two different mothers, whereas Jacob and Esau had the same mother. They both had pure Jewish bloodlines. And so the first example, God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. The second example, God chose Jacob, not Esau. 
Verse 10, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of him who calls. God's choice of Jacob over Esau was not based on either of their character or their conduct, but on God's purpose and pleasure. It's just, it's what God wanted. And God is God, and he can want whatever he wants, and he can do whatever he, wa- whatever he wants to do. And frankly, it's, it's, it's a wonder that God chose either of them, because if you know anything about them, they were both scoundrels. It wasn't like one was better than the other. They were both wicked. But he says, hey, before the twins were born and hadn't done anything good or bad. So God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Again, our salvation has nothing to do with who we are or what we do, but on the fact that God has effectually called us. And we're already familiar with that term, calling, because we looked at it in Chapter 8, verse 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. So there's a general call that, that, that God sends out to all mankind. Calling everyone to repent and believe in him. I am God, there's no other. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Repent and believe. There's this general call, also called a universal call, which is widely rejected and, and why so many still are unsaved. But then there's an special call that God extends to the elect, which is irresistible and it inevitably results in salvation. It's that eye of the tulip, irresistible grace. And God's effectual call involves the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit who enables us not only to hear the gospel but to understand it. And, and, and we're convicted of our sin and we're regenerated and God, through his spirit, grants us repentance and faith. And so it's according to God's call, his sovereign call. And then to seal his case here, Paul quoted two Old Testament passages about the twins here. Verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. This was a quote from Genesis 25, 23, that that, um, despite the fact that Esau emerged from the womb first, and if you remember, Jacob came out holding on to his heel, right? But, But God chose to bless Jacob which went against Jewish tradition. Ordinarily, the firstborn was the rightful heir to all the honors and privileges, but for no other reason than his sovereign right to decide the destinies of his creatures, however he pleases, he chose Jacob and not Esau. And then he gives another quote, verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. He's quoting Malachi, the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, and 
the prophet was writing some 1,500 years after the death of Jacob and Esau. So he wasn't referring to them as individuals per se. He was referring to their descendants, the, the Israelites and the de- descendants of Esau who were the Edomites. And the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom were both punished for their disobedience and rebellion against the Lord. And so it's not so much God showing preferential treatment here, that the hate here, this is, this, is, this is one of those things like you wince at and you're like, ooh, I don't like to hear that, that my God hates people, right? I mean, that's the kind of hard, one, hard pill to swallow there. Well, I think the hate here is more like the, the preferential treatment that Jesus required his followers to show him. Remember Luke 14, 26, if a man does not hate his father and mother, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, did he really mean you had to hate your mom and dad in order to be a Christian? Well, he clarifies it in Matthew chapter 10. If anyone loves father or mother, what? More than me is not worthy of me. So the idea of hate is loving less. Loving less. So Jacob I loved, but Esau I loved less. Maybe as a Again, not to gloss it over, not to tone it down. That's not the point. Because however you deal with that, this is one of the verses uh, in the Bible from which some derive the doctrine of reprobation, which is the, the logical counterpart of the doctrine of election. And some reason, and follow this carefully, if, if God chooses those who'll be saved then by default, he also chooses those who'll be damned. And and so the idea is, you know, it's like when you were at recess and you were picking teams and okay, one, two, one, two, you're on this team, you're on this team, you're on this team, you're on this team. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's our minds taking the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion, which the Bible is reluctant to do. It always uses election in a positive sense and applies it to believers. It's always referring to saving people, not sending people to hell. Nowhere does the Bible say that people go to hell because God doesn't choose them. It says people go to hell because they chose not to repent and believe the gospel. Now admittedly, there are a handful of passages in scripture that that seem to teach reprobation, or we talked about it several weeks ago, double predestination, meaning certain people have been chosen or predestined by God to go to hell. We're going to have to deal with one right here in Romans chapter 9, verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Jesus referred to Judas as the one who was doomed to destruction, 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about those who are disobedient to the word uh, and it says to this doom they were also appointed. Jude 4, certain people were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. And so again, the natural implication is that God is equally responsible in some way for causing people not to believe in Christ as he is for causing people to believe in Christ. But God doesn't prevent anybody from believing. They do that all by themselves. He simply, here it is, ready? 
He simply passes over them and allows them to keep right on doing what they're doing, which is rebelling against him, and allows them to keep right on going where they're already going, which is what? Hell. In other words, he doesn't do anything to them. He just leaves them alone. And if left alone, where are we all headed? What do we all deserve? We, by nature, are all objects of God's wrath and are destined for hell. And yet God graciously chose to rescue some of us. And so the clear emphasis here in Scripture is that God chooses those who go to heaven, but men choose to go to hell. So if we go to heaven when we die, God gets all the credit. But if we go to hell when we die, we get all the blame. I think that's being faithful to what the Bible teaches. I think it's also important to remind you this morning that God loves mankind. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he desires all men to come to repentance and all men to be saved, according to 1 Timothy 2 and 2 Peter 3. But men refuse to repent and are condemned to hell as a result of their unbelief. Jesus said that in John chapter 3, verse 18. Again, Paul's simple point is none of us would ever be saved unless God in his great love and mercy intervened to grant us a pardon. Now, some of you may be sitting here saying, wow, I don't know, Ken, you seem to be overstating this a little bit, and I'm not sure that's exactly what Paul meant by what he said here. Was he really teaching this concept of unconditional election? Well, the next verse proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Paul was teaching unconditional election because he knew how men, men's minds, men's hearts would naturally respond. Notice verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? In other words, the, the natural response of the human heart, if we truly understand what Paul was saying here about unconditional election is that's not fair. That's just not right. Well, maybe we could look at it from this perspective. If we were all inmates on death row, and the judge, who is not bound to let any of us go, but he chooses to demonstrate his mercy by pardoning some of us, while at the same time demonstrating his justice by letting the rest die for their crimes, and the only ones left on, on death row, they can't cry. That's not fair. That's unfair. As if they were innocent victims being condemned for a crime they didn't commit. No, they were getting what they deserved. They were getting justice. You want justice? <laughs> You want fairness? No, no, you don't want justice. You want mercy. And the ones who are pardoned will spend the rest of their lives praising and thanking the judge because they didn't get what they deserved. 
they didn't get justice, they got mercy. And in the same way, no one ever gets treated unjustly by God. God doesn't condemn anyone to hell who deserves to be saved, but he does save some who deserve to be condemned. And the question that should keep us all up at night is not why, God, why didn't you choose to save everyone? That's not the question. The question is, God, why did you choose to save me? Because I know me. There is no reason why you should have chosen me. And when we see election from that perspective, the confusion, the fear, the frustration, the anger, whatever might come into your heart normally fades into wonder, awe, and praise. Just like Paul said in Ephesians chapter one that that the, the reason why he brought up the doctrine of election to begin with was for the purpose of encouraging us and strengthening us and comforting us and ultimately motivating us to praise and honor and glorify him to the praise of his glory. Amen? And so come back next week and we'll move into this next section and grapple with how Paul vindicates the justice of God in light of unconditional election. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this difficult truth, this confusing concept, but it really is a liberating one if we'll just submit to your word and... uh, believe what it says, even though we don't fully understand it and never will till we get to heaven. And so, Lord, as we grapple with these truths in our minds and our hearts this week, that you would, by your spirit, illuminate our minds to understand a little bit more and that uh, ultimately, rather than frustrating us or, or scaring us, this, this beautiful doctrine would delight our soul and fill us with great joy and awe and praise and thanksgiving and adoration of you for being so gracious and kind and merciful to us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.